Welcome to the Scope 3 Agenda podcast with EcoVadis. My name is Fergal Byrne. Over the coming months, I'll be interviewing senior business leaders actively working on supply chain decarbonization, reducing Scope 3 emissions in a variety of different industries. We discuss companies' decarbonization journeys, the challenges, their experience and strategies, explore what is working, and identify key lessons and insights. I'm very pleased today to welcome Andreas Ahrens to the Scope 3 Agenda podcast with EcoVadis. Andreas oversees the global climate agenda for Inter-IKEA, the group of companies that connects IKEA franchisees, the long-term development of the IKEA franchise system, and aligns the overall IKEA strategic direction. So thank you for joining me today, Andreas, on the Scope 3 Agenda with EcoVadis. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about the supply chain decarbonization work you're doing at IKEA in some detail. But before we go into that, maybe can you just tell us a little bit about your job and responsibilities at IKEA? Sure thing, Fargo. So my name is uh, Andreas Hangel Arns, and I lead the global climate agenda at the Intrakia Group. So I keep together the, we say, the global climate agenda for any impact the IKEA business has on climate change. So it includes both uh, advising and defining uh, commitments and goals, also identifying what type of movements or actions we need to take in order to drive down our climate footprint as well as also keep together the overall climate footprint reporting and analysis. That's a very wide remit, Andreas. Now, many supply chain executives have been facing tremendous challenges of one kind or another over the last couple of years. It's been a very difficult time. Where does climate fit in? How does one balance climate priorities when dealing with more urgent supply chain challenges? Yeah, no, it's it's a very good question. And I think the key is also, I mean, how it's really embedded in our culture and values within IKEA. I mean, we have a vision to create a better everyday life for many people. So there's a strong culture within IKEA to want to do good. Then what really helps to support, to maintain focus, is that the climate footprint is a KPI and part of the balanced scorecards in the business as well. So this is followed up such as like price development or quality. So regardless of what happens, that is something that will measure progress versus. And then I think finally, it is in times like these, it's key to understand what really drives down the climate footprint in our supply chain as well. And many of them are, say, more long-term actions or more supportive actions. So take example of them program we launched in June 2021 to enable our suppliers to purchase renewable electricity. That is something that we can do regardless of what happens in the business. And what we've also seen is by really bundling together our suppliers' electricity consumption, we can also save costs. So we actually managed to save 50% of electricity cost in Poland for our suppliers. And we'll announce that also now in our climate report. Very interesting. Now, how important a priority is decarbonizing the supply chain at IKEA? Can you tell us a little bit about your goals here and where you are on your journey? Yeah, sure thing. So I think for us, we usually do not split it in terms of like scope one, two, three. We always look into the totality of the IKEA business impact on climate change. And then we set a goal for the totality of a value chain as well as specific parts. So one goal on materials, production, now on transport and our retail operations, etc. So each part of our business has a specific goal. 
And we set our uh, science-based targets during 2017, and we announced them the year after. So we've been on this journey now for, what is it, uh, six years. And I think that has also led us to really work thoroughly with the agenda. When we set the goals, it was important for us to engage with all parts of the business and uh, the different managers so that they really understood not just what the goal meant, but also which main actions to take. So pushing for renewable electricity or renewable recycled materials, pushing for plant-based food. So we developed these roadmaps together with them. And what we're seeing now is really the, the more and more the outcome of these roadmaps. It was a few years ago, we launched a plant ball. It has 4% of the climate footprint compared to the normal meatball uh, in its food ingredients. We also identified that we need to help our suppliers to purchase renewable electricity, which led us to launch this program in 2021 to support suppliers to purchase renewable electricity. So it's step by step. We're really taking these movements we identify are really being realized. And the current performance is that we've managed to reduce our absolute greenhouse gas emissions by 12% since 2016. And 5% of that was achieved compared to last year. So it's really accelerating now. Now, scope three is all about suppliers, of course. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges trying to get suppliers to reduce their emissions? And I think it comes back to um, when we talk about scope three emissions, it's so easier. I see many companies that just bundle all scope free emissions together into one bucket. And if you look into IKEA or into IKEA Group where I sit, the franchisor, 99% of our emissions are scope free emissions. But they are really not, I mean, from an accounting perspective, they should be scope free. But how we address them, I think it's really important to separate them. If we look into the materials used in our products, of course, it's maybe difficult to get what is the actual specific footprint for IKEA, but it's something that we can address by both improving existing materials, or we also have a possibility to change materials as well. If we look into the use at home, for instance, we also develop the product so we can make them more energy efficient. Even if, of course, we rely on estimations on what the electricity footprint of our customers are, we can still design products to be more efficient. And I think this is sometimes where, if I'm going to be honest, I think we go wrong, but we strive towards having perfection in our reporting instead of understanding how to actually drive down the footprints. Another one is uh, onto with suppliers as well. I mean, how do you, and I talk about our direct suppliers, how to get quality data from them. And I think a key success for us is that we have a long-term relation with our suppliers. Over 11 years, uh, on average, uh, is the business relation with our suppliers. And we've been collecting energy consumption from our direct suppliers since 2010, if not later, uh, or not earlier. So this also is like a strong collaborative approach where we collect, we give feedback to them, and we jointly work on action plans. So that has helped us to really drive down the footprint from production. And it's almost been reduced by 40% compared to 2016. What proportion of IKEA's scope three emissions come from your upstream activities? Yes. So I would say, I mean, if you look into um, 
our footprint to say that two thirds of our footprint is connected upstream in our supply chain. So it's the materials we use in our products, how the parts are produced and how they're transported. And that's why I think it's so important that we do not split uh, or we, we, that we don't bundle all of the scope free emissions together because there are three different agendas, right? Or even four. I mean, when looking to materials in our products, it's both how we make active choices but we also have within IKEA quite ambitious material innovation and development agenda. So what type of new materials do we need to develop or which type of materials can we improve by, for instance, pushing for more recycled content? And here we've made a rather big move towards recycled polyester as well. We also mean looked into our classic icon, the meatball at IKEA and made a plant-based version of it. That's fully a range and product development question as well. So I think it's important to demystify Scope 3 and make it more actionable, to be honest. Right, make Scope 3 more actionable. What does that mean, Andreas? I think one problem is, I think when you move from an accounting standard, such as the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, which is very solid, very rigid, and you try to set goals based on an accounting standard. I think that's sometimes when things go wrong. If you look into um, the first category in scope free called purchase goods and services, for us, that includes all the materials used in our products. It includes the manufacturing of our products and also the food business as well, which is different from our materials. So there we've had to split it up in three parts. And we also know that the manufacturing products, about 10% of our products roughly are manufactured by our own factories. So then we, those products manufactured end up in our scope one, two emissions. But really what we would like to do is just look into the overall manufacturing of our products and address it more functionally. And that leads us actually to set a goal for production, which is a combination of some of our scope one, two emissions and some scope free emissions, mainly then the category one and the direct supplier tier of purchased goods and services. So I think that type of approach is also split it is key. I think what another scope free category is also the energy related emissions as well. So, I mean, how much is coming from transmission distribution losses and fuel related activities? And when we address that footprint, we do it together with our scope one, two emissions so that we do not set a specific goal for scope one, two and another goal for how to reduce our energy related and fuel activities because movement is pushing for renewable electricity. And what we want is also to make sure that as much as possible is generated on site. And then it's important that you do that together as well. So you also, I would say, need to somehow combine different categories with each other. Then, of course, and that's from a goal setting and how you lead the business. But the key from an accounting perspective, they need to be separated because you need to have good books in order. But there, from driving action in a company and setting goals, there is a step. And I do fear that sometimes we set goals in terms of how an accounting standard is built up instead of how a company is operated. Accounting standards are there in order to secure that there's no double accounting and also you can make it comparable between companies. 
But companies are not operated according to accounting standards. Same also if you look into, say, profit and loss. If you want to drive and improve a specific part of a business and not align in your tax uh, declaration as well. And I think that is the issue as well. To really functionally drive it, you sometimes need to combine different scopes and drive it more holistically as a company. That's very interesting. Now, can we talk about data? In previous interviews in this podcast, we've discussed the challenges of calculating emissions accurately without primary data, but the companies that have to rely on secondary data. Can you talk about some of the data challenges when it comes to scope three, Andreas? Definitely. I think data is always key to obtain good quality. And also, I think it also depends on what type of primary data we need to obtain. So, for instance, from our direct suppliers, we do obtain bare energy consumption. So we get pretty much their invoices, but they report it down on uh, through a reporting tool. Verification of that data, of course, takes time, but it's also a continual work that we, as we also work together with our suppliers to improve and define actions, they also realize the importance of providing good quality data. So action and data quality improvement go hand in hand. Because if somebody wants, if you report something, you also want feedback on what that performance is and how to improve it. So it's like a, almost like a plan, do, check, act methodology of continual improvement. Then I think it's, there's always this criticism of um, that we want more primary data in order to make better decisions. At the same time, I would say it's also what I talked about previously. How do you define the model as well? For IKEA, a big part where we need to make estimations, it's connected to our materials where we rely a lot on um, emission factors from uh, life cycle assessment databases. And here, I think it's important to model those emission factors as well on how to drive improvement. Because maybe what you want to know is maybe not exactly the precise footprint of uh, your materials all the way down through the supply chain, but you would pretty much want to collect primary data from, say, a mine. But rather, how can you obtain key data characteristics for the materials you use? So, for instance, take an example of, um, say, plastics, for instance. You would like to know which type of plastic. Maybe it's like polypropylene, so PP. But you would also like to know, say, what is recycled content of that polypropylene. You would also like to know how much of polypropylene do you buy from each supplier. And can you also separate, are there like geographical differences in polypropylene produced in Europe versus uh, East Asia or North America? Or also, can you work with your suppliers to also maybe understand which company the polypropylene granules came from and already there you can make more precise models still based on you can say um, lca data for estimating all the tiers upstream supply chain but by knowing which country recycled content which company produced it you can make that estimated emission factor more specific to your supply chain it's not 100 accurate but it's accurate enough, I would say, in order to actually 
be able to steer and see the impact of, okay, what happens if I move towards more recycled content? What happens if we source more polypropylene from one geographical area compared to another? Can we compare one petrochemical company with another? So already there, you come with many, many key insights that will help you drive a business without actually having to get primary data all the way down to the oil well, which I think it's it's a gigantic task, to say the least. So I think we also need to be smart when we mean what type of more accurate data is it that we're after. I think when it comes to goal setting and time horizons, uh, I think it's very important to have both a short-term and a long-term goal, where the long-term goal sends more, I can say, an indication to the rest of the world what you are committed to as a company. And the short-term ones are the actual ones which come into a business plan. So if we look into IKEA, our business plans run on a three-year horizon and our strategy run on a five-year horizon. So if we put goals which are until 24 to 2050, they are too far away and they cannot actually be incorporated into business plan. But if you set them on a five or say 10 year horizon, you can also slice them up and see, okay, based on what, where we need to be in five, 10 years, how much should we achieve becoming three years? And it becomes more tangible for business as well. And it also serves the importance of, since we're talking about greenhouse gas emissions, that it's not where we are in, in 2050, which is important. It's really how much are we able to have the emissions until 2030 if we want to limit climate change to 1.5. So it really pushes this urgency of actions right here, right now, instead of looking into the future and hope for technological development that might or might not come to be realized. When it comes to following up our goals, I mean, we, we have set goals Primary, I mean, our strategic goals when it comes to greenhouse gas emission reductions are until 2030 in line I mean, with both the IPCC reports, but also I mean, UN sustainability development goals also run until 2030. So all of our sustainability goals run until 2030. But then we have also decided we're relevant to set shorter term goals, like sub goals, you can say, to these overarching strategic goals. One such sub-goal is, for instance, for our own operations, we want to consume 100% renewable electricity by 2025. If we look into our direct suppliers, we want to phase out all coal and fossil oil-based fuels used on site already by 25 as well. Because we know that that had a big impact both on our climate footprint as well as on air pollution as well. So I think it's also key that you can set short-term sub-goals, which are more actionable for business to address. And then we, I mean, we we just define, I mean, the data that we need to collect and the models we have defined so that we are able on an at least annual basis, able to follow up the progress. And at IKEA, we've also been on a journey on this as well, because we also want to be transparent of our progress versus goals as well. So the... Um, IKEA Climate Report, that the first one that was launched last year and the, the latest one launched on the 15th of February. We also want to be transparent about all strategic goals we have connected to climate and any sub-goals as well, as well as any progress versus them as well. So it's really possible to track these because I think that is key. 
So this is about setting goals that are credible, but also stretch the organization as well. We are. And I think uh, it's important to have a stretch when we set the, the current goal that we defined and launched in 2018. The 12% reduction that we've achieved so far, our initial analysis was that we would not reach it already now. But we've also seen great development in the accessibility and affordability of renewable energy. Electrification has also been made possible due to this. So I think there's a lot of things that also are enabled by when one's company start committing and you're not alone addressing the topic. And that can actually bring forth both policies and technological breakthroughs uh, that really enable further action. So yeah, I think it's um, key, but it comes back to the point how you set credible goals. To my initial point, it's also how you define the calculation model for your footprints. The calculation model needs to be designed in a way so that you can actually capture the movements that happen in a company. Just to take one example here, I mean, what we know that many companies do when it comes to material footprint is that you suspend based analysis. So how much do you spend on different materials? It's an extremely shallow model to do it. And with such a model, you would never be able to capture, say, an increase in recycled content or moving to a renewable version of a material. You would capture the materials on a very high level, and then you would never be able to follow it up, which means that your KPIs might seem that we're going in the wrong direction. But physically, in your range, you would have actually done great progress, but there's no way to capture these movements. And I think that is sometimes the issue. And that is also key input to actually setting a credible goal. Can we talk a little bit about supplier engagement within your supply chain? How does IKEA approach this? What have you learned about engaging suppliers in emissions reductions throughout and across the supply chain? Yeah, definitely. And I think the key thing is also what sets the tone of how we interact with suppliers. That the key is that we, we we don't call them suppliers. We call them supply partners because we think it's important to work together. So take one example when we set the goal for production of our products. And that's the goal is of 80% reduction in absolute greenhouse gas emissions between 16 to 2030. Our suppliers, as well as our purchasing teams, maybe thought we were a bit crazy when we set that, but I think it was important for us because we knew that we were able to reach it if we really dug into the data. But of course, you want to help the suppliers to understand what it is that they should do. So here already, before we set the goal, we identified, okay, this is the contribution from purchasing renewable electricity. This is the potential generating electricity on site, and this is the potential of phasing out fossil fuels used on site, say natural gas for ovens or coal uh, used for boilers. And what we've done then, it's converted these tactical movements together with sustainability teams out in our purchasing organization to translate them into concrete action for each and every direct supplier. We also got the feedback from suppliers sometimes stating that if you look into the energy used on site, it requires a lot of investments. Maybe they need to electrify a furnace. Maybe they need to phase out a coal-based boiler with some kind of other renewable option. 
that requires a lot of investments. So what we actually divide, decided to do was to provide different offers to our suppliers um, where we have today free offers. One is that we actually have um, finance. We actually have a financing for renewable energy generated on site. Uh, so it's pretty much discounted loans to just enable investments. We also provide energy audits uh, based on our sustainability colleagues out in purchasing towards our suppliers to reduce the energy consumption, which also then saves money, but also means it's less things that need to be converted. And then finally, that we have this third program, which is how we enable our suppliers to purchase renewable electricity by bundling their electricity consumption, negotiating better contracts, as well as also enabling uh, power purchase agreements. And this is key. That is the direct suppliers. Then if we look into, say, our materials, I think this is also about partnership. If we want to reduce the impact of materials, of course, we can choose which material we have on our products. That's, of course, true. But it also means that we need to engage with many material companies to develop new materials as well. And here, I think it's key to step away from a purchaser-supplier relation to more a partnership as well. Because material companies, they want to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions as well. And we want to do this well. So then we can work together to develop new materials. And since we are sitting on a customer-facing side, we can also drive demand for these materials and help to scale them up. So there, it's more also like a partnership approach. So I think it's really key when you're addressing your greenhouse gas emissions to really think about what type of supply chain management or business approach is required to enable this as well. Right, right. You talk about direct supplies. What about the rest of the supplier base? So yeah, that was what I was on to. So direct suppliers, we had the free offers. But if you think about deeper in the supply chain, it's mainly about the materials used in our products. That, that's half of our climate footprint. And we have ambitious goals to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. We have a goal as well to aim towards recycled and renewable materials only. And here is what I mean that you as a company cannot put requirements on a material company and say, you need to improve your greenhouse gas emissions because most probably, I mean, looking at IKEA, we're a very, very, very small player if we're looking into petrochemical industry or in the steel industry. But if we actually work together with material companies, because as I said, they also want to reduce their emissions if they have set the goal, of course. So for them, they need to reduce the impact of their portfolio products. And those products that they have are the materials going into our products. So here it's key to, to really build, say, alliances or partnerships or uh, joint development projects to really improve and develop new materials. And then they can come into play into our range. Another case, I would say, is also in the transport uh, industry as well, where take shipping industry, for instance, we need to find a way how to phase out the fossil fuels used in ocean shipping. But historically, there was not any biofuel available for, for long distance shipping. So what we did was we partnered with the Port of Rotterdam, Good Shipping Organization and CJACM, a shipping company as well. And then together, the four of us, we actually developed and implemented the first 
ocean carrier that went from Europe to Asia and back again, driven only on biofuels. So that's also like one of those joint projects where we went not just within the supply chain, but also across and thought more holistically on it and how to enable it. When we discuss with uh, our, take our direct suppliers as a case, of course, we set very ambitious goals. I mean, the, the 80% reduction that we're on for 2030, it requires pretty much that all suppliers need to convert to 100% renewable electricity and come as close as possibly can towards 100% renewable energy. And of course, that is a big commitment. It requires investments on their side. Uh, they also need to upskill maybe some of their workers. But the key is to set really strong requirements and accountability that also you follow up and the, the performance of these goals have an impact. But also by working together uh, and supporting them. So almost like a carrot and a stick. So you cannot just tell your suppliers to improve. You actually need to visit them and provide support, such as financial support, or that you help them to purchase renewable electricity so that they don't need to do that. Maybe it's a supplier with only five white colors, for instance. There's no chance that they have a possibility to actually look into how renewable electricity purchase looks like. So you really need to understand their situation to both challenge them and support them as well and really visit them. And I think it's also key to have a long business relation. Uh, these things that we're after are, I mean, it's long-term societal shifts. Uh, if you resource your supplier base every year as well, I think it will be very short-term as well. So that's why I think the average 11-year business relation we have with our suppliers is really a key success factor to drive change. Now, we've talked about working with suppliers or partners outside of IKEA, but what about the skills and values, the culture within IKEA itself, and how this contributes to supply chain decarbonization? Yeah, no, no, definitely. Uh, and this is really important, uh, I mean, how to actually drive goals and not just set them. I think at, at a key, at least, a prerequisite, I would say, is for culture and values. People want to contribute. Then... There are key success factors as well. And I think one of them, it's also to inspire and clarify to people because we need to identify who will actually drive this footprint. So if we look upstream in our supply chain, of course, that is within our purchasing organization as well as our product development. Downstream, it's also product development as well as our retail business. And then it's important to not just to define a goal, but also identify what are the main movements and and what is the contribution of these as well. And and that's a work that the sustainability team needs to do. So a sustainability team needs to understand the business in a very, very good way. Uh, It's not just to set a goal and, and hope that the company figures it out, but you actually need to identify what is the contribution from renewable electricity? What is the potential of a a plant-based dish, et cetera, to make that type of analysis. And then you move from strategic commitments and goals down to tactical movements that you need to focus on. And if you have these tactical movements in place and uh, can also show the organization what is the impact of each such movement, then it also becomes more easy for the business to act on them because then it's not maybe a goal that they act on. Of course, they followed up on a goal. 
But what they do act on are actions. Instead, it's something concrete. It's like, okay, I should tell my supplier to purchase renewable electricity. Okay, I'll do that. Ah, okay, I'm a product developer. I should find a, a new type of textile material for this product. Aha, okay, I'll do that. So that type of translation of goals into tactile movements, I would say it's incredibly essential by a sustainability team. So you cannot just be a sustainability person. You need to have deep business competence in order to actually translate and speak the same language. So the sustainability folks also need to have a deep business understanding. I think it's a challenge. I, I think it's on both ends. I mean, sometimes we talk, we, if we sit in sustainability, you can say, oh, I wish business uh, had more sustainability knowledge. But it also comes back to us who work in sustainability. We also need to understand business because we're not researchers looking at sustainability. We are working, I can only speak for myself, I'm going to work at a company. I need to understand how the company works, how the company does business. And I need to be the translator of all of the scientific evidence that's out there, translate into goals, and as well as convert that to the business so that they can take actions. It's almost guiding the business to, to which actions they need to take while still uh, enabling them to feel committed as well. So I think that's, that's a key thing. You, you cannot just work with sustainability at a company. You need to work with sustainability and business development. Well, what about procurement, Andreas? Can you talk a little bit about the role of procurement in decarbonization at Inter-IKEA? Now, so procurement, uh, it's incredibly essential. Uh, if we look into the IKEA climate footprint, two-thirds is upstream in the supply chain. We also not just source products from our suppliers, but also sometimes we develop products with our suppliers. So, and then we need to look at different types of procurement. Is it the, how we procure where our products should be produced? We have a procurement of all the transport as well. And then procurement can also work more longer from a perspective that that is also where we have the material development roadmaps as well. It's not that maybe a direct relation with our suppliers, but we can work with say material companies deeper in our supply chain and partner to develop new products. So having a very good engagement with our procurement, but also have a very solid sustainability organization who can sit very close to people in procurement, build their competence, advise, inspire, clarify, and working together, both with procurement people uh, as well as suppliers. That is incredibly essential uh, in order to actually drive change. It needs to be front-led from that perspective. So you've just finished your annual sustainability report for the last year. It's just come out recently. What's next in terms of scope three, Andreas? Uh, we are saying in IKEA, but most things remain to be done. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, even if uh, we have uh, reduced our emissions by uh, 12% compared to 2016, 5% com was compared to last year, those have mainly been driven by great movements in the short-term movements we have seen in the manufacturing of our products and the energy efficiency at home. What's really next is how we secure the mid-term and long-term movements as they're mainly connected to the material agenda. So we've set a really solid plan for good roadmaps for material innovation and development. And now we really need to secure that these movements also become realized in the IKEA range as well. 
And I think that is when we start seeing that, I think we can really start talking about incredibly significant reductions of our climate footprint and towards the 1.5 goal. Well, that's a great ambition, and Andreas, and I wish you all the very best of success with that. And thank you so much for your time today and sharing insights on the great work you're doing at IKEA. Thank you for having me, Fergal. Thank you for listening to the Scope 3 Agenda podcast with EcoVadis. We hope you found it interesting, and would love if you could share with your colleagues and leave a review. If you would like to find out more about EcoVadis, please visit ecovadis.com.